0: Previously on The Great James Bond Car Robbery.
1: Do I have $200,000 for this historic vehicle, ladies and gentlemen?
0: Puglisi bought it at auction
2: in 1986.
1: He thought he could incorporate the
3: DB5 into one of his movies.
0: A half a million or even or one million would have protected the investment, but the insurance payout was $4.2 million.
4: Bond is, I think, a mixture of what Fleming would have liked to have been and the sort of people who he knew.
0: He adored cars. He liked them and I liked them, but he really liked them. From the Spiescape Podcast Network, you're listening to The Great James Bond Car Robbery with me, Elizabeth Hurley. Episode 3, Grand Theft Auto. Does this sound familiar? That's right. We're back at Boca Raton Airport, South Florida. The night in question? The small hours of Thursday, 19th of June, 1997. Remember theory number one? James Bond's Aston Martin DB5, the most famous car in the world, is dragged from its hangar onto a waiting military cargo plane. Well, theory number two starts the same way. Clear. As before, the door at Building 4, Hangar 6 doesn't put up much resistance. A hacksaw deals with the padlock. There's an alarm, but it's easily silenced with wire cutters or something similar.
1: Okay, careful now.
0: And they're in, face to face with the perfect Bond car. Torchlight plays across the bodywork, over wheels with concealed tyre shredders a trunk with a reasonable bulletproof shield, and headlamps which house hidden, fake machine guns. Only this time, there is no cargo plane waiting to whisk the prize to safety. The car is locked without a key, can't be driven away, but the thieves know this. They're prepared. They hitch it to the flatbed tow truck winch, lifting the front two wheels off the ground. It moves slowly, dragging, As it leaves the hangar, the rear tires leave two distinct tire marks on the ground. They have to go slow. The DB5 is both heavy and delicate, especially with all the added gadgets. Nearly there. And flatbed tow trucks are noisy, tricky pieces of metal. Not to mention out of place at a small airport in the middle of the night. But it's too late for those concerns.
1: Clear. Let's go.
0: Now, for the riskiest bit of all, exit. This being a small airport, there's more or less only one way out for traffic, the main entrance gates near the guard shelter. At this time of night, you should expect to find only two people on site. First, a staff member for the aviation fuel depot, but that's often another part of the airfield. They should have no clue such an audacious crime is taking place. Second, the night watchman. Now this is their department. All through the night, they're either stationed in the guard shelter or touring the grounds looking for suspicious activity. Suspicious activity such as driving a tow truck laden with a stolen James Bond car. 100 meters from the gate, 50 light still shows at the guardhouse window. And our the sound of late-night TV wafts through the window. 25 meters now. Foot off the gas, just a touch. Moving not so fast as to look like there's a hurry. Not so slow as to look like they're nervous. And still, no reaction from the guardhouse. Leaving requires the truck to stop at the most dangerous of all possible places, right by the gates. Our thieves need nerves of steel. The gates open wide, as if this was just a regular delivery truck. And they're out. The most famous car in the world disappears into the rain-drenched Florida night. At least that's how it could have happened.
4: I think the, the primary theory is that some kind of heavy goods vehicle, some kind of enclosed truck comes onto the premises, loads the DB5 and squirrels off into the night.
0: Adam Luck, the investigative journalist who's been looking into the case for us. This version certainly sounds simpler than secretly landing a huge military cargo plane on the main runway. But squirreling off into the night has its own complexities you still need to infiltrate a large vehicle into and then out of an airport filled with the prized possessions
4: of some of South Florida's richest people, which takes us to security. Once you're on the premises, in effect, you could, you know, quite easily manoeuvre your way around the airfield. Once you're in, you're in, basically.
0: The area containing the private aircraft hangars is protected by a perimeter fence with access through a security gate opened with a security or gate card. Adam's spoken to a number of people familiar with the system at that time.
4: Security was so lax that anybody, frankly, could have a security card to automate the gates with. And you just simply hold them against a box and then the the gates would automatically open. In other words, uh, if you're a pilot, for instance, and you had a plane on, on the premises, your family members could come along and buy additional security cards. So, you know, there could be any number of candidates.
3: I mean, all of our tenants had gate cards.
4: Harry Whittle,
0: who leased out the hangars at the airport. We heard from him in episode one. He's among the people Adam spoke to.
3: Anybody who knew anybody had a, a, a gate card. And at one time, they were pretty careless about letting people in. They had a um, intercom at the gate. And there was no way that the person answering the intercom could see the person at the gate.
0: There were also no security cameras focused on the private hangars or the main entrance area. In effect, no oversight over who entered. Whether you were using your own security card or someone else's or had cloned one, no one would confirm your identity or check what kind of vehicle you were bringing in. This being the 90s, the card system also didn't record which cards had been used or when.
3: So you push the button and say, I own N5787 Lima, and I need to get in. Yes, sir.
0: The gate slides open. That's entry covered. Exit appears to have been even more simple. Memories differ, but some accounts describe a system where leaving the gated area didn't even need a card. Again, no human oversight. Nobody
3: came running out to see who you were or checked your credentials. At that time, before 9-11, it just was not all that secure. And of course, the owner of the car, who was the tenant, certainly had access.
4: The perimeter fence itself was supposed to be another point of protection. There's no sort of secondary security. Once you get into the airport, there's really not much preventing you from Going off to the hangars, even though the hangars are in a different area of the airport from the uh, runway.
3: I think it was a six or seven foot chain link fence around the airport. It was mainly on the street side that they had this fence, but it was reasonably easily scalable. And I remember one occasion someone had parked their sports car in one of these outside parking locations, and the next day, His car was up on blocks, and somebody had cut a little gate in the chain-link fence and taken all the expensive wheels off his car.
0: If the gates and the fence weren't reliable, the next element of security was human, the airport's night watchman. There was one security guard to watch over the entire airport, including more than 60 private hangars filled with aircraft and cars. Those familiar with the running of the airport have told us there were issues even here. Some guards struggled with the demands of the job in fairly basic ways. One guy was fired for falling asleep on duty. But we've no reason to think this applies to Dave Dragowski, the guard on duty on the night of the theft. Our team has been given access to Boca Raton's police department's complete police investigation report into the crime. It runs to 30 pages covering nine months of work on the case, and it contains records for an interview by an officer, Bill Schnackenberg, with the night watchman, Mr. Drugowski. Here's Schnackenberg's notes on what Drogowski told him.
1: He advised that he had worked at the airport between 2300 hours and 0700 hours. He said he did not see or hear anything suspicious. He also said he doesn't drive around the North hangars but he can see them from the tarmac area.
0: Bill Schnackenberg is now retired as a police officer and he declined our request for an interview. We weren't able to trace Drogowski. In the police report, Drogowski says he did see lights being turned off in the area where the DB5 was kept.
1: He said that this happens when the airplanes activate the airport runway lights. He said that there were planes flying in the area at the time of the incident.
0: In other words, he assumed that the lighting system was being accidentally triggered by aircraft overhead.
1: Dragowski said that it's easy to hop the fence and gain entrance to the airport. He also said that a piece of metal could be placed on the ground to open up the electric gates.
0: Triggering the automatic system. That flaw in the gates was apparently well known. Even more than 20 years later, airport management staff mentioned it to us as well. But apart from the gates and the chain link fence and the security guard, The DB5 should have had a final ring of protection, the aircraft hangar itself, rented by Mr. Anthony Pugliese, the DB5's owner at the time. But here, too, security was surprisingly easy to penetrate. One of the other officers on the case was Investigator Ladowski, who also contributed to the report. She didn't respond to our request for an interview. Listen to how she describes the crime scene at the hangar.
1: Upon arrival, I found unknown persons
0: had cut the rubber molding on the hangar door and were able to reach in with some kind of hacksaw or similar cutting device and cut the metal latch where the padlock is attached. A padlock that you could cut off with a hacksaw to secure a $4 million Aston Martin. The hangar's alarm system also suffered from what you could call underinvestment. This is from investigator Schnackenberg's record of his interview with Anthony Pugliese.
1: Mr. Pugliese also said that the alarm that he had on the hangar was not monitored by any alarm company. The alarm went to his business address. He said that he would be having an alarm specialist come out to his hangar and advise on what had happened.
0: With no active monitoring of the alarm in place, there was minimal risk for thieves in simply cutting the wires. Of course, any theory of the theft still depends on intelligence. Access to the knowledge that Boko Raton airport security was seriously flawed and the knowledge that valuables like the Goldfinger DB5 were being kept there. And that information was arguably available. To understand how, we need to dig a little deeper into Boca Raton as a city. It's a town that sometimes wouldn't be that of place in a Bond movie anyway, starting with a Boca Raton institution. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the ninth annual Boca Raton Concourse d'Olegance as we kick this weekend off here at the live hangar party.
0: Parties like this are keenly followed by local media. This is from Eye on South Florida.
5: As we mingle among the supercars, luxurious jets and the who's who in our community to make an astounding... Well, a hangar party is where you throw an amazing, ostentatious, incredible party in an airplane hangar. Karen
0: Turk is conservative television and radio host and a former Miss Florida.
5: A proud South Floridian. I've been down here about 21 years.
0: And a regular on Boca Raton's Hangar Party Circuit.
5: You know, what you need to understand about coming into South Florida and coming into Boca Raton Airport, you're driving down the highway surrounded by palm trees. You know, the sun is shining. So now you're in paradise and then you're able to be amongst all of these luxury items. And I think that's why this makes this such an amazing location to have a party like this.
0: The hangar parties have made Boca Raton Airport a center for glamour and conspicuous consumption for years. And Boca Raton isn't the kind of town that expects you to keep quiet about your wealth. Karen's favorite event is the Wheels, Wings and Fashion Hanger Party.
5: And it's a, um, a really amazing event. They leave the hangar doors open, so the outdoors and indoors sort of become one. And in the middle of it, there's a huge runway for the fashion show, and there's bars set up on different corners, and you grab your cocktails and mingle with the crowd amongst airplanes and exotic cars.
0: Yes, the exotic cars. Many of the Boca Raton hangars hold high-end car collections as well as private planes. And that was the case back in the 90s, too, according to people like Harry Whittle. We don't know for certain if the DB5 was ever on display at a hangar party, but we do know for a fact that other luxury cars at the airport often were. In fact, the cars are often as much a part of the show as the aircraft.
1: All right, I got some food.
3: Let's check out some more cars. I know that there's a, I heard there's a Bugatti here somewhere, so I'm going to walk around look for that.
0: This is a clip from the YouTube channel Finish Line Factory. They're at the 2020 Concorde d'Elegance party. Hangars crammed with private jets, sports cars, food stands. Clips like this spread the word about the latest in luxury in Boca. And Aston Martin still get adoring attention.
6: Got an Aston Martin right here. This is the DBS Superleggera. Look at this thing. V12 powered, 358,000 MSRP. There you go.
0: Yes, the Aston Martin Superleggera is the great-great-grandchild of our DB5. Even today, Bond is everywhere.
5: You know, you always feel a little bit like a celebrity, no matter who you are when you walk into this party, because it's truly a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So doing some sort of fabulous indoor-outdoor party is very much a part of the Florida lifestyle.
0: Why does this matter? Well, if someone or a group of people wanting to establish the location of beautiful, flashy, expensive cars to steal, the goods were on display at events like hangar parties.
6: Boca runs the gamut from middle-class community to the 0.1%.
0: Gerald Posner is the author of Miami Babylon, Crime, Wealth and Power, an Exploration of How Florida's Underworld Merges with Legitimate Wealth.
6: So you do get incredibly wealthy uh, People who have retired from the Northeast, in many cases, are buying $10 million homes along the waterway. And then you get people who are running a bakery.
0: safe to say, if you're able to rent an aircraft hangar for a private plane or a bond car at Boca Raton Airport, you're probably doing okay for yourself. The brashness of Boca's high society doesn't always go down well with the rest of Florida, particularly the old money types.
6: If you ask somebody in Palm Beach, does the elite live in Boca Raton, they would have just sneered and laughed at that. But that's because they have this pseudo sense of sophistication. The people in Boca may have earned their money in their first generation. It may be newer money in some ways.
0: And of course, there's a history to this.
6: Palm Beach built sort of as an exclusive resort, which Jews and blacks were excluded from. So the the very type of place that Boca is, which is wealthy but self-made money in many cases, uh, would have been the type of place that people that went to Palm Beach would have looked down their nose at the people in Boca Raton.
0: Whatever the old money types thought about them, hangar parties were already going strong in the mid-1990s when the DB5 was taken. In fact, there are signs that there had recently been one of these parties very near to where the DB5 was stored. In the police report of the theft, Anthony Puglesi tells an investigator that the previous month there'd been a party attended by around 150 people at the hangar across from his and that there'd been collectible cars at that location too. Most intriguingly of all, there were also signs of forced entry at that same hangar less than a week earlier. A case of the wrong address? Or were the thieves trying their luck throughout the airport that week?
6: Organized crime in South Florida is very unorganized.
0: Whether random theft or not, cargo plane or tow truck, the DB5 heist would still have required a certain level of skills and experience to pull off. And those skill sets have existed in Florida's underworld for some time.
6: One of the things that the mafia boasted about in uh, New York was that there there is these mafia families, uh, five major families, and they would have their own turfs and sometimes they would have wars over those turfs. In Florida... The families agreed that it was neutral ground, which meant that they could buy homes here. Al Capone moved here, for instance, at one time, and many mobsters do in fact move here, but that no single crime family would come in You wouldn't have the so-called Lucchese family or the Genovese family control Boca and another one control Miami and another one control Jacksonville, Florida. So they agreed that they could still do business here as long as they didn't step on each other's toes.
0: A place to relax, which was helpful, particularly for the more senior tough guys.
6: This may seem odd. Many of those mobsters, they do get older, and those that don't die or end up in jail do the same thing that people do who work at insurance companies. They retire, and some of them retire to Florida because they are tired of winters in New York or New Jersey or Chicago.
0: Why wouldn't you want to change your scene after a lifetime of violence and intimidation? In The Sopranos, there's a whole episode called Boca, devoted to a holiday break in the city.
6: You know, if you were in the insurance business selling insurance policies for 35 years, you retired to Boca Raton. If you've been a mobster for 35 years and you're used to importing cocaine from South America and you retire to Florida, you get tired of golfing after a while and maybe you get involved in a couple of drug deals.
0: Naturally. Or maybe you decide to steal an Aston Martin DB5. On June 23rd, investigator Schnackenberg noted what looked like a breakthrough.
1: When I returned to the police department, I had a message from a Doug Wiseman. The message indicated that he saw a vehicle that looked like the James Bond car near O'Hare Airport in Chicago.
0: Schnakenberg calls Wiseman back.
1: He advised that he was driving down Lively Street in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, he believes Friday morning, June 20th, when he followed a silver Aston Martin, he said, that appeared to be the James Bond car. He did not remember seeing any license plate on it and did not see the vehicle driver. He said he followed the car about two blocks and then it turned off.
0: Now, Chicago is a long way from Florida, and this sighting took place just two days after the theft, suggesting that the container vehicle, or the DB5 itself, had been driven at high speed across the country or been airlifted. Schnackenberg calls Elk Grove PD in Illinois, but isn't able to get much further. Then, it happens again.
1: On June 25th, I received a message from Jeff Sullivan in Rhode Island regarding the Aston Martin. I called him, and he advised that he was sure that he saw the James Bond vehicle at the Home Depot in Seekonk, Massachusetts.
0: Home Depot? Were the thieves offered some new bed linen? And why were they now in New England?
1: On June 25th, I received a message from dispatch that a subject, Barbara Edwards, had seen the Aston Martin on the Interstate 40 in North Carolina, westbound. I called and spoke with Miss Edwards. She said she had seen a silver vehicle on the entrance ramp to Interstate 40, She said that the vehicle looked like the Batmobile.
0: Yes, the Batmobile. 007 versus the Joker. The plot thickens.
1: She said that she then went and got a USA Today. She said that she read the article on the missing Aston Martin and thought that the vehicle she had seen was the same. There was no picture of the vehicle in the newspaper, and she had never seen the vehicle before.
0: Not the most compelling witness, someone who has spotted our missing car but who admits to having no idea what it actually looks like. Soon after this, Boca Raton police stopped chasing cross-country DB5 sightings. We'll be returning to what happened in Florida next episode, but first, a little more on what makes this particular vehicle so desirable, so unusual, so famous, and so different from other cars. Last time we heard how Ian Fleming's lifelong obsession with fast, beautiful cars influenced the idea of bond. But the Goldfinger DB5 is more than a fast car. It's a fast car with gadgets. It's early 1940s London, the height of World War II. Rationing, blackouts, air raids a constant threat, but civilian daily life goes on. And on this afternoon on Savile Row, the gentleman's tailoring district and the epitome of British tradition and the establishment, a junior civil servant is being fitted for his suit. He's in his late 30s, dark hair, tidy moustache, working as a minor official in the Ministry of Supplies, Clothing and Textile Department. And he has an unusual request for a civilian.
7: As I was having a suit made at the time, I asked the tailor to put a little extra pocket suitable for carrying
0: a weapon. The weapon being a small, semi-automatic pistol. Many years before 007, there were already ways to combine deadly force with the finest traditions of British craftsmanship.
7: I would also carry it under my arm, held in place with a belt, or sometimes rather loosely in my back pocket. It was only on rare occasions that I bothered to have the thing on me at all. There were times when it seemed advisable.
0: The official is Charles Fraser Smith, who we encountered last episode working with Ian Fleming on a bizarre plan to hijack and then crash-land a German bomber in the sea. Needless to say, the textile department job is a cover. In truth, Fraser Smith is Britain's leading inventor and supplier of covert intelligence devices – spy gadgets. Smith was the real-life inspiration for Q in the Bond films, the quartermaster and senior officer who equips James with ingenious and deadly equipment. And indeed, Fraser Smith actually called his inventions Q items, the letter Q signifying deception in wartime jargon. By this point in the war, he was also beginning to suspect that his work might have been just a little too successful, hence the need for a double-breasted sidearm. These quotes come from his highly entertaining memoir, The Secret War of Charles Fraser Smith, here voiced by an actor.
7: It was pointed out to me more than once that I might conceivably become the target of an assassination attempt or even a kidnapping. Once in a while I would notice a chap changing buses with me as I travelled around London. This made me
0: cautious. He never did have to fire the pistol in anger, but his caution might well have been justified. Fraser Smith was a key figure for British espionage a tweedy genius whose work transformed Britain's attitude to equipping its covert operatives. For almost every challenge faced by agents in the field, he was able to create a bespoke technological solution. In other words, a gadget. If British agents entering occupied France needed a means to destroy their top secret orders, he had an answer.
7: I could supply completely edible paper. Tough, but palatable, so that a suspect or costed agent could make a meal of his notes, swallowing them after a few bites. How many times secret messages were chewed or swallowed during the war in this way without the slightest gastronomical effect, so far as I know, is hard to say. But beyond doubt, many agents could be grateful to my suppliers for their efforts.
0: If British POWs needed access to special ink to forge documents for escape attempts there were ways it could be provided.
7: I managed to create an array of trick chessmen playing pieces and draft pieces that Houdini might have admired, including a chessman containing a watertight compartment to hold the necessary liquid. The piece was a knight, and to open the bottle, it was necessary to unscrew the horse's head.
0: Nothing was left to chance, even the telltale lack of garlic on a British spy's breath.
7: In a nation as garlic-ridden as the Spanish, I had recognised that easy detection of a foreigner could follow any lack of this smelly substance. To overcome the necessity of having to educate our people in its somewhat exotic taste, I therefore decided to flavour chocolate with it. I included this in their equipment. The trouble was I had to persuade honest English chocolate manufacturers that I was not pulling their leg.
0: Way ahead of his time. If chocolate infused with organic garlic isn't yet available at a farmer's market near you, it probably will be soon. Unlike many of the devices the fictional cube prepares for Bond, Fraser Smith's gadgets tended not to be weapons. The closest was a fountain pen with a secret compartment containing a map and compass. Another intelligence branch adapted this to also include an explosive charge that fired a gramophone needle at the enemy, a sort of vinyl junkie's assault weapon. But even without the emphasis on weapons, Fleming's debt to Fraser Smith was obvious.
2: Definitely, yes. Fleming, he was basically naval intelligence's link man.
0: Andrew Lysett is Ian Fleming's biographer.
2: Fraser Smith came up with the idea of the, the hollowed out golf ball that could contain sort of materials that could be sent to agents overseas. Uh, this was something that Fleming latched onto in his novel, uh, Diamonds Are Forever, and using a golf ball to transport diamonds or precious stones.
0: It happens about halfway through the novel. Bond has infiltrated an American crime gang called the Spangled Mob and smuggles diamonds for them hidden in golf balls.
2: So Fleming was all- Always keeping his eyes open as he moved through the secret services. So, you know, he'd obviously sort of accumulated this bunch of knowledge.
0: Fraser Smith himself was not impressed with Fleming's version of the golf ball device. You could almost hear the veins throbbing in his forehead.
7: The reason I remember him was that he used, or misused rather, one of my most imaginative little gadgets, a golf ball which contained a compass. The whole point about the secret ball, usually sent out to our POW officers in a box of six, is that they perform as golf balls. In other words, they had to bounce with the same vitality and elasticity as any top-flight ball ever made. Fleming's contraptions, as described so fascinatingly in his novel Diamonds Are Forever, wouldn't have fooled an Irish farmhand, let alone the lynx-eyed prison officers and the SS of the Oflax.
0: Not a big fan of 007. He probably wasn't impressed with the gadgets Fleming imagined for Bond's Aston Martin either. But they are clearly also inspired by Fraser Smith's philosophy of disguise and concealment. War by stealth. In the novel, Bond's car is equipped with a secret compartment to hide a pistol and hidden overriders for ramming enemy cars. And Fraser Smith's interest in navigational tools, like that compass in a golf ball, is also present the Aston Martin's equipped with a homing device, allowing Bond to tail Goldfinger across Europe. It's part of a larger pattern with Fleming's work, cramming influences from across the whole of his life into Bond's world. You know, similarly,
2: you have his interest
0: in gambling, his
2: interest in cards, which crop up in those early novels. These are sort of things that he was able to introduce into his novels, and which make them fascinating, really, and, and you know... It, Basically the details stand up today.
3: Oh, that's
6: beautiful. Next to it is an Aston Martin Vantage. And I just love the styling on this car.
0: Private planes, cocktails, sports cars. Back in Boca Raton, hangar party culture still seems built for a classic Ian Fleming subplot. Maybe throw in some retired gangsters, or even a golf ball filled with diamonds.
5: It is a very Florida thing. I think we really party better than anybody else in the United States, and if you haven't visited or you haven't been here, it's one of those things where you have to close your eyes and really just imagine paradise.
0: Next time
6: on The Great James Bond Car Robbery. I'm an ex-thief. I used to pinch cars and break into houses.
0: It is a place of conspicuous consumption. You can't park your Ferrari on the street because the Aston Martin's in the way. Thieves
6: know that
7: the Aston Martins are hitting several hundred thousand pounds.
3: He had this sense of certainty about himself and this sense of elegance.
1: He designed twin flamethrowers on the front at the press of a button. You want to know about a car that's going to be a death machine? We're going to build you an
3: automotive death machine.
0: That's all in episode four, And if you want to know more about the life and work of Charles Fraser Smith, we recommend his memoirs, The Secret War of Charles Fraser Smith. An excellent short biography by David Porter also exists. We used both in putting together this episode. The Great James Bond Car Robbery. Brought to you by the Spyscape Podcast Network. The producers are cup and nuzzle. Disclaimer. The Great James Bond Car Robbery is not affiliated with E.ON Productions, Metro-Golden-Mayer Studios, Inc. or Danjak, LLC. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy... Agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real
6: life. Find out more at spygames.com.